0: Well, good morning, morning. what a joy it is to be together celebrating our Lord's death, His burial, and His resurrection together this morning. You can open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, as we return there from our brief hiatus in the Old Testament for the summer. And while you're turning there, I have a couple of questions for you. What do you long to be known for? When people mention your name, what do you pe- want people to say about you, to think about you? When you eventually die, how do you want to be remembered? What is the primary thing, when people think your name that you want them to say? Is it how successful you were? How generous you were? What a great parent you were? How nice you were? None of those things are wrong. Those are, in fact, I'd love to be known as a good parent. But if that or any of those things or any other thing is the primary thing that people remember, then you are failing as a Christian. Do you know what the term Christian means? So they got the diminutive shun at the end to Christ. It is a little Christ. It means to be an imitator of Christ. Everything we do, everything we are remembered for, should flow out of the fact that we are, as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, Christians, little Christs. Our entire identity should be wrapped up in this. The things that we think, the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we pursue, should be based Out of wanting to be known as Christians. This morning we are introduced, perhaps for some of us and many of us, it's reintroduced, to Jesus' twelve apostles. The faithful apostles were men who understood their calling. They understood their identity. And they cared, quite frankly, more for their identity as disciples of Jesus Christ, though the term Christian had not yet been coined than anything else the world had to offer. Read along with me, if you will, and I'm going to back up to just a couple of verses, the end of Matthew chapter 9, to set the context. Beginning in 935, we read, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out his workers into the harvest. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. And gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, as we look at this text, as we look at the calling of these 12 apostles out of the group of disciples, pray that you would help us to understand our calling, to be encouraged, to be exhorted by the lives and the faithful testimony of these men, that we would leave this morning better understanding and more fervent about our mission, that if in everything that we would seek to be known as your disciples pray that in your name, amen. Well, as I noted, we return to our study in the Gospel of Matthew after a brief hiatus of nearly two months. We previously wrapped up chapter nine, which concludes, as we read just a moment ago, Matthew's introduction to Jesus. Those were what most of the first nine chapters included, and the presentation of the kingdom of God and an overview of his accompanying ministry, his message, and his miracles. Chapter 9 ends with Jesus' compassion for the people of Israel and his exhortation then to the disciples, calling on them to pray. Saying, beseech, call out to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I find it fascinating somewhat that rather than just solving the problem in an instant, what does he do? he calls on his disciples to pray. This harkens right back to the Sermon on the Mount where he taught his disciples how to pray. It highlights for us the importance and the seriousness of prayer as disciples of Jesus Christ. And not only that, the effectual effort of prayer, the effectual outworking of prayer. Because what do we see right at the beginning of chapter 10? Chapter 10 opens with the answer to this prayer. Now you may remember that The disciples as a whole were a group of at least no fewer than 70 and perhaps many more than this. These men, and at the time even women, were earnestly praying that the Lord would answer this prayer and from that larger group of disciples praying that the Lord would send out workers, there arise 12, 12 who are called and are here designated as apostles, a term which itself highlights their sending out. Remember he had said, pray the Lord would do what? Send out workers into the harvest. So what did he do? It's apostles, those who are sent out. Notice the specificity of the answer to prayer. We might use other words such as ambassador, delegate, or messenger, depending upon the context and the purpose of sending. As we know from other parts of the New Testament, there are a number of unique functions these apostles served. In fact, there are others who are later called apostles, though they have a different level of authority. These 12 have a unique authority, a unique ministry compared to later apostles in the New Testament. These 12, though, are given a mission. And as you see right there at the introduction, it's a mission that is an extension of Jesus' own ministry. Matthew, at the end of chapter nine, bookends how he had introduced Jesus' ministry with going throughout all the cities and villages preaching the kingdom of God, but performing every kind of miracle and healing every kind of disease. And he bookends that at the close of chapter 9 and then opens chapter 10 by delegating this very same authority to this group of apostles. And while Matthew opens with this description of authority which Jesus gave to the twelve, it's in verses 5 and 6 that we actually won't be looking at this morning where Jesus' actual instructions begin to those that he is sending out. And identifies there the object of their mission, the lost house of Israel. And in verse 7, the message they are to proclaim to them. And then this is followed by the miracles they are to perform. And several other very specific directions that we'll discuss over the coming weeks. The specific instructions and empowering of the twelve concludes in verse 23. After which, it's not that he stops talking to them, but then he broadens the view It's as if the camera zooms out and includes not only those 12, but now all disciples and provides additional instructions and directions that apply not just to the 12, but to every faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further, I want to make an observation concerning the ministry of the apostles and the implications this has for us some 2,000 years later. We do need to recognize the uniqueness of the ministry that the 12 had. While there were many other faithful disciples, they were not all given the same authority or this same specific ministry. And so while there is application to be gleaned, we must be careful to distinguish the specific ministry of the 12 from the ministries that we may have, or the ministries to all of his disciples, to every faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, every follower of Jesus is rightly called a disciple, but not every disciple has their same responsibility and calling. Paul highlights this very well for us, in fact, he uses the illustration of the body. All of the different parts and members of the body when he talks about the church working together in concert with one another for the building up of the body of Christ and the proclamation of the kingdom. This doesn't minimize the importance of our work and our obedience as disciples of Jesus Christ. It didn't minimize or negate the importance of those other 70 or more disciples. But it does distinguish these 12 from them. As we've seen in previous weeks, there are many, many responsibilities we have as disciples of Jesus Christ. But again, as we observe the apostles this morning and in the next few weeks, our primary focus for application will be on imitating their character and their faithfulness. That is what we need to be thinking about, is observing what certainly what they do. What did Jesus call them to? And then note their character and their faithfulness in that calling, because that is where we need to be applying. Additionally, I want us to observe something that you may easily miss here. It's the work of the Trinity in this. The work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because that same Godhead is at work today in leading in directing, supporting, preserving, empowering disciples of Jesus Christ as they seek daily to fulfill their responsibilities, as we seek to faithfully fulfill our responsibilities as disciples of Jesus Christ. Notice, it begins with Jesus saying, pray to whom? Pray to the Father. Pray that he will send out workers. Chapter 10 opens then with what? The Son sending. And though we're not there yet, if you look down in ch- verse 20, We see the support that the Spirit provides in the ministry. You see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working in concert through the disciples. We're still called upon to pray to the Father today. We're still called upon to proclaim the message of the Savior, and we're still called to walk by the same Spirit. This term apostle, as we've already noted, refers to those sent. What is another term we might use for those who are sent today? It's missionary. The term missionary implies that they are on a mission, and that mission is to be the proclamation of the gospel, the kingdom of God, the planting, the establishing of churches, discipling and raising up leaders. We are still to be praying for those to be sent out and praying for those who are sent out. Let me ask you a follow-up question. If I were to ask what the primary motivation of missions is, what would you say? Perhaps it's increasing the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. Perhaps you might answer that it's strengthening or building the church. Perhaps it's to provide better theological training. Perhaps to share the gospel to those trapped in the darkness of false religion. Now, all those are good things. None of them are bad reasons at all. In fact, they have biblical support for those motivations. But let me ask you this. What was the reason and the motivation for these first 12 missionaries and apostles? Well, the express motivation and reason for Jesus' sending of the disciples is at the end of chapter 9. Summed up in a word, it's compassion. Do you think of that word when you think of missions? When you think of our responsibility as Disciples to proclaim the message. Compassion is what moved Jesus to call on the disciples to pray to the Father. Compassion is what moved the Father to answer the prayer of the disciples. This compassion is something we really need to work hard to cultivate. In an age of digital communication and polarizing views, it is easier than ever to lose our compassion for those who we disagree with politically or on social issues. We quickly lose sight of eternity in our fight for the temporal and I'm not saying that those things are completely unimportant only that they take a back seat to the condition of a person's soul these things should never override our compassion for their eternal well-being our compassion for the lost must transcend our political beliefs and that needs to be obvious it shouldn't be that we have to explain that after the fact it should be obvious that our compassion for people transcend our political and our social opinions. And that compassion is essential in preventing us from seeing other people as the enemy when in fact they are the mission field. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 3.12 saying, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and blameless, put on a what? Heart of Compassion. But how do you do this? How do you create compassion? How do we cultivate it? Well, one, we need to remind ourselves of the state of those who are without Christ. We can best understand that by remembering that we were at that one time lost without Christ. We were under the same judgment. We were unable to please God no matter what we did. There was a hopelessness. We likewise need to remind ourselves of the impending and imminent day of the Lord. As we discussed when studying the end of chapter 9, that harvest language, that is judgment language. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment. Imminency does not necessarily mean immediacy, but it doesn't preclude it either. And that's why, as I was talking with one person this morning, every generation since Christ's ascension has expected Christ to return. Eminency means that from a human perspective, nothing else has to happen in order for the ushering in of the time of the day of the Lord and the judgment that comes with it. Recognizing that, remembering that, and then remembering the state of the persons around us without Christ will help to cultivate compassion. That's why we've said, and we say it again, if you were here this morning and have not repented of your sins, if you have not turned to Christ as your only hope and your only source of salvation, if you have not confessed your spiritual neediness, please understand that that judgment means eternity in hell. And that may seem so abstract because that term hell gets thrown around all the time, But hell is where there is no relief from pain, there is no relief from suffering. As we discussed last week, the most difficult suffering you have on this earth will be a pleasant memory. So please don't wait. Don't assume you have another minute left to live. Repent and turn to Jesus. Call out to Him as your Savior. Because you don't know, one, how long you may live, or two, when He will return. You know, we don't often think about it this way when we think of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples here. that Their calling and their setting apart was an answer to the disciples' prayer, the larger group of disciples. Yes, Jesus called them, but their separate out, separating out and their sending was a direct answer to that prayer, as we've already noted, of that larger group of disciples. I think it's right for us to consider, in light of that, how are we praying today? Yes, we're certainly to be about the ministry and the busyness of being a faithful disciple, but how are you praying? Are you praying for the Lord to send out workers? Are you praying for those who have been sent out? It's appropriate this morning that we have a couple of our missionaries with us. And it's helpful to have them in mind and others in mind when we come to passages like this. Are you praying for them? Are you praying regularly and earnestly for this work? As we've already got seen, God will answer those prayers. He's given us a pattern of that. Every month we publish in our prayer sheet. We publish our prayer sheet. At the end of that sheet are our missionaries. Are you praying for them? Are you praying for the Lord to send others to join them? And then for others to go out from them. Be faithful to do that. To pray with the urgency that we see here, to pray with compassion. Still today, there is need for workers in the harvest. As we look at those 12 that were raised up, as we look at verses 2 through 4, we see a list of names. Very little additional information is offered to this list of names other than to provide them, those who were set apart, those 12 called apostles. What I'm going to do the remainder of our time is provide a Brief snapshot into the life and the ministry of these 12 apostles. We're then going to draw a couple of important, very important conclusions from their lives and deaths that have implications for how we live as apostles of Jesus Christ, or I'm sorry, as disciples of Jesus Christ, in light of observing these apostles. Verse 2 is the only time in Matthew's gospel that he uses the term apostle or apostles. But it's appropriate that it's used here in their calling and their sending and their setting apart of these twelve. The first two names are Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. Peter and Andrew were early followers of John the Baptist before they were followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was Andrew who first introduced his older brother Peter to Jesus when they were in the wilderness with John. It was after meeting Jesus that they left John to follow him. As because of this, Andrew is often called the first one called. Peter is well known for his prominence and place as first among equals amongst the twelve. Although frequently, it's first to put his foot in his mouth. Peter was bold. His boldness and his brashness earned him more than one rebuke. But also earned him a place of importance. While Peter is known for his denial of Christ on the night he was betrayed, from that point forward, he was one of the primary leaders, the boldest of the leaders of the early church ministering in Jerusalem. History tells us that he died a martyr's death, that he was crucified during the reign of Nero in Rome. However, Peter did not believe himself worthy of a death like his Savior. So as he was about to be crucified, he asked to be crucified upside down because of his unworthiness, and this likely happened around the same time Paul was beheaded in Rome. Andrew, Peter's brother, according to tradition, was a missionary to several countries within the Roman Empire after Jesus' ascension and after Pentecost, particularly around the Black Sea. He founded the church of Byzantium, later Constantinople and Istanbul. In fact, he saw the first elder or bishop there around A.D. 38. Like his brother Peter, Andrew, when the time came for his death, he too was martyred, did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus and was thus crucified likewise upside down on a cross in the shape of an X. He was bound to it rather than nailed, which just prolonged the suffering. In the entry of Fox's Book of Martyrs, it reads, He preached the gospel to many Asiatic nations, but on his arrival at Edessa, he was taken and crucified on a cross, the two ends of which which were fixed transversely, forming the cross in the ground, hence the derivation of the term St. Andrew's Cross. Some accounts say that he hung there for three days before expiring. But here's what's remarkable, as during that entire time, he continued to preach the gospel to many below is a historical account of what Andrew supposedly said when taken to the cross. As he saw the cross and he saw the method of his death, he said, Hail, O cross, inaugurated for the body of Christ and adorned with his limbs, as though they were precious pearls before the Lord mounted you. You inspired an earthly fear. Now, instead, endowed with heavenly love, you are accepted as a gift. He went on to say, Believers know of the great joy that you possess, and of the multitude of gifts you have prepared. I come to you, therefore, confident and joyful, so that you too may receive me exultant as a disciple of the one who hung upon you. O blessed cross, clothed in the majesty and beauty of the Lord's limbs, take me, carry me from men, men, and restore me to my teacher. So that through you, the one who redeemed me by you may receive me. Hail, O cross. Yes, hail indeed. Next, we encounter James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Mark tells us in Mark 3.17 that Jesus nicknamed these two the sons of thunder. As awesome as that name is, we have no idea why it was. We don't know why they received those nicknames. Although I like that Jesus used nicknames. Nicknames. It's a question we'll have to wait to ask them in heaven. James is the only disciple whose martyrdom is recorded in the Bible. We find it in Acts 12, too, Herod had James killed by the sword, which means he was likely beheaded. Tradition states that James was a missionary also to Spain, although since he was, his death is recorded in Jerusalem, it's, if that took place, it's likely that he headed there before Returning and being martyred in Jerusalem. John, not to be confused with John the Baptist, is part of the three who formed that inner circle of Jesus Peter, James, and John. There was the larger group of 70 or more persons, there was the 12, and then there were the three. John wrote more of the New Testament than any of the other apostles. Jesus, it says, had a fond affection for him. You may remember at that Last Supper, we celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning, that he leaned in, he was sitting close to Jesus. John survived to an old age, and while he suffered severe torture, he alone among the disciples was not martyred, or among the apostles. That didn't mean that he didn't suffer persecution though. According to history, John was partially lowered into a cauldron of boiling oil. He was later exiled to the island of Patmos. In fact, it was there that he received the vision and the teaching of Revelation and recorded it. John returned from exile to Ephesus where, according to history, he lived out his days. John had a profound impact on the early church as the longest surviving of the apostles. In fact, several of the earliest church fathers claim to have learned directly from John. Next, we meet Philip. We know very little of Philip reading church history or even the books of Acts, we also have to be careful not to confuse Philip the Apostle with Philip the Evangelist. The early church fathers sometimes made little distinction as it's hard to tell which Philip they're even talking about. For example, it's Philip the Evangelist, not Philip the Apostle, who ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch. But according to Clement of Alexandria, we find Philip early on amongst the disciples Here in Matthew 10, you can flip back and look at Matthew 8, 21 through 22, where it says, Jesus directed words to to a disciple, specifically, let the dead bury their dead. According to Clement, Philip is that disciple he was talking to. After Jesus' ascension, Philip is said to have gone to Phrygia, which is modern-day Turkey, as a missionary. And he was martyred there in Hierapolis, which is far western modern-day Turkey. In fact, in 2011, a grave was discovered that many believed to be the grave of Philip. Some accounts say that Bartholomew and he were crucified together, and again, while crucified, continued to preach. And so convicting was their preaching that the crowds began to cry for them to be let down. And Philip said, let Bartholomew down. It's possible that that's exactly what took place because... While little is known about Bartholomew from Scripture, every time you find him mentioned, it's Philip and Bartholomew. Or Philip with a couple other names and Bartholomew. You never find those two apart. And that accords well with the tradition that notes that after the, they're being crucified together in Turkey. And, but we also have records that indicate Bartholomew ministered the gospel later in Persia and India before suffering a martyr's death. So it is quite possible that he was let down and then went on to minister in Persia and India. The most reliable counts indicate that he still suffered martyrdom. He was flayed, skinned alive, and then beheaded. Then we see Thomas. Unfortunately for Thomas, the catchy moniker Doubting Thomas was too easy to remember. So Thomas is best remembered for his doubts concerning the resurrection of Christ until he could feel the wounds in the hands, the feet, and the sight of Christ, which he did. But rather than his moniker, Thomas should be remembered for his loyalty, obedience to the gospel, and his ministry throughout Asia. Interestingly, Scripture doesn't give us Thomas's actual name. The, the name Thomas means twin. It's from the Aramaic word twin. Sometimes you'll see him called Didymus. That's no help either. That's the Greek word for twin. Church tradition is uniform and specific, though, regarding Thomas' death. It's more specific than any of the other apostles. As one early church calendar reads, July 3rd, St. Thomas, who was pierced with a lance in India. Other writings say that this took place, again, on July 3rd, 72 AD, in Milipur, India, which is in the southeastern tip of India. It's a long way from Jerusalem. Matthew, the tax collector. As a tax collector working for the Roman machine, it was somewhat remarkable that he was called and responded to the call of discipleship. It was truly a work of the Lord in his heart. He would have been a political and national traitor to his fellow countrymen, collecting Romans, the taxes for those dirty Romans. After Jesus' ascension, Matthew ministered first in Judea before heading east. According to tradition, he ministered in Ethiopia and Persia. Eventually, Matthew, like so many of the other disciples, suffered a martyr's death. The method of execution is not clear. Some records say beheading, others stoning, some burning, still others stabbing, and some a combination of several or all of those things. James, the son of Alphaeus. It's one of three persons named James in the Bible. He's also called James the Less in Mark 15, 40. The term James the Less doesn't mean he was less important. We should actually read James the Younger or James the Smaller. It's possible, though uncertain, that James the son of Alphaeus was, in fact, Jesus' half-brother. If this is the case, James is one of the most important persons in the early church. However, we cannot say that with any sort of certainty, so it's best to leave that this side of heaven. James, the son of Alphaeus, certainly died a martyr's death, but later records sometimes conflate those with James, Jesus' half-brother. As a result, it can be ter- difficult to know the manner in which he was martyred. Some records indicate he ministered in Persia and modern-day Iran and was martyred there. Others indicate that it was after there that he, went, he did survive that attempt at martyrdom and went down to Egypt and was there crucified in Egypt. James, Jesus' brother, was pushed off the pinnacle of the temple, the same pinnacle where Satan took Jesus during the temptation. He survived the fall, then he was bludgeoned, and then he was stoned to death. That was James, Jesus' brother. And sometimes those stories are conflated, and so it's difficult to tell what James that was. Thaddeus. Thaddeus is a bit of a mystery. It's not at all uncommon to have two names, a Greek and a Roman name, or Greek or Roman name, and then a Hebrew name, Thaddeus had the privilege of having three names. I was talking with Elise about this, and she said, he must have been from the south. (laughs) For this reason, Jeroboam dubs dubs him the man of three names. In Matthew, we see Thaddeus, sometimes called Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus. And Luke refers to him as Judas, son of James in both Luke and Acts. And given that Judas became such a byword after the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, it's little wonder that Thaddeus preferred not to go by that name. Church history says that Thaddeus remained in Jerusalem until Pentecost, after which he took the gospel to the north, into Turkey, and founded a church in Edessa. Edessa. Thaddeus was eventually martyred, likely being axed to death. Simon the Zealot Really, we should read Simon the Zealous One. Well, the term Simon the Zealot is often used. The term refers to a zealous one generically. It's unlikely, though not impossible, that Simon was one of of those military zealots who waged guerrilla warfare against Rome. But it's just as likely he was zealous for the law or Judaism before his calling. Or perhaps it's that he was zealous for Jesus Christ. And there derived the name the Zealous One. Tradition states that this Judas first preached in Mesopotamia and in Egypt and then partnered with Jude, the brother of Jesus, ministering in Persia or modern-day Iran. In one account, while in Persia, they encountered two enchanters whom Matthew had driven out of Ethiopia. Some traditions record him ministering in Ethiopia as well as Iberia. And then several traditions say that eventually, near the end of his life, he traveled to Britain near the end there, and was crucified and martyred. He got around. Finally, we read Judas the Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Here's one who needs virtually no introduction, whether you've been raised in the church or not. He died in ignominy, whose name is synonymous with betrayal and deceit. The term Iscariot has a number of different suggestions, but at the end of the day, we have no idea what it means. I want to point out something kind of neat about that, though. The lack of knowledge that we have about that term is scary. It actually points to the antiquity of the text we have, to the historical accuracy and the ancientness of the text. What do I mean by that? Well, this lack of knowledge points to the fact that even though people didn't know what it means, they continued to write it down and preserve it. Nobody later would add something they didn't know. And so it must have been original to continue adding it and repeating it and including it. Why else would the copyist continue to record a name or word they didn't know or understand unless they believed it preserved the original? It's amazing sometimes how our lack of knowledge and understanding reveals something even more profound. Matthew adds the note to Judas saying the one who betrayed him. Matthew when he wrote Notice this, assumes on the part of his readers an existing understand of the overall story of Jesus, his betrayal, and crucifixion. This is important for our understanding of the context of Matthew and Matthew's purpose in writing the gospel. This wasn't primarily, it doesn't mean that it didn't have a secondary purpose, but his primary purpose was not to first introduce the story of Jesus. He's writing to those who did know the story of Jesus. That must mean he's writing to convince them of something else. As we've talked about more than, on more than one occasion, he's writing to present Jesus as king and to preach the coming of the kingdom to those who already know the story of Jesus. You likely know the story of Judas Iscariot. Betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That very night, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Afterward, Judas felt regret for betraying Jesus, but rather than repent, and it's an interesting story. When we get to the story of Judas, we're going to talk about the difference between regret and repentance. But rather than repent, he tries to return the money. In other words, he's trying to wipe up and clean up the mess after the fact. It's like when my children try to clean up a mess or a big spill. It's still very obvious what took place. Some of them are getting better at it. Judas tries to clean it up after the fact. He tries to return the money, but when he goes to the religious leaders, they offer him no comfort. They basically say, what what do you have to do with us? Go fix fix yourself. Since he can find no comfort, unable to live with what he does, he goes and hangs himself. You know, we consider this list of apostles, and one thing becomes abundantly clear, particularly for the eleven the 11 faithful apostles, they understood the importance of their message and ministry. They demonstrate obedience to the point of death. Kevin DeYoung writes that one mark of a godly Christian is that they fear sin more than they fear suffering. Sadly, Christians today, especially in the West, appear to be more concerned about suffering or just simple discomfort than they are about sinning. In fact, there's even persons today who want to be called apostles. You realize that? They long for glory. They long for wealth. They want ease. They want comfort. Frankly, the only apostle they resemble is Judas who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We are called to emulate the faithfulness of these apostles as they follow Christ. Christ. Paul later says that. He says, follow our example as we follow Christ. Living for him above all else. To be known by no other name. To be known for nothing else. We likewise have a ministry and a mission. We've talked about that. We talk about that every week. And while our ministry and mission have different specifics than that of the apostles, we are called to the same faithfulness. So as we look at these lists of names, we think about Hebrews 11 and that hall of faith. These names function in very much the same way. To provide for us the example of those who have gone before us. And to set a pattern of faithfulness in the midst of adversity, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering. Who cared about nothing else other than making Christ known. The question this morning is, do you desire to be faithful? And what are you willing to give up to do that? For these men, it was everything. Turn with me, if you will, to the very end of your Bible, Revelation 22. At the end of Revelation, in light of the judgment in the kingdom of God. Two themes we see at the end of chapter 9 of Matthew leading into the sending the apostles in chapter 11. John is given tremendous encouragement. And we see a reminder to faithfulness. Read along with me as I read several verses here beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 22 to close out our time together this morning. John talking about The angel who was showing him these things says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have the need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. It is imminent. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, the one who is filthy still be filthy, let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You see those same reminders. The imminency of the kingdom of God, the day of the Lord, the coming judgment. And the call for faithfulness to disciples. And one of those callings, whether you're in your workplace, whether it's in your family, whether it's to go out and be a missionary, is to proclaim the kingdom of God out of a compassion and a desire to see those people brought into the gates. May we be faithful in our discipleship as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, just the reminder of these apostles whom you sent out. Thank you for the reminder of the reason. Thank you for the reminder that you answer prayer. Father, help us to put on this heart of compassion. Help us to long to see a person saved from the wrath to come. Let it motivate what we do. May our desire to be known by you be everything. Father, it is a hard thing to do in our culture. We confess that. We acknowledge that. Help us to not be distracted by the things of this world. In your name, amen.